we don't have a lot of fraternal organizations anymore uh, as far as uh, places that men can be men. And uh, I mean, Boy Scouts used to be an organization more for younger men, but it was a place where you would learn how to be a man, right? And it's unfortunate to me that that that's there's a stigma now attached to that. To there's a suspicion aroused when men are together as men, and we must be up to something. Like there must be some kind of we're we're, we're determining who we're going to oppress next or something. I don't know. And um and, and you know maybe that's the reason for it. Maybe there's other you know complicated reasons. But uh, you know even things like bowling leagues and elks lodges and that kind of thing. It's just not really um, something that's done. And and I think you know. It's important for men to come together, especially Christian men, uh, because we need each other. We, we have to be able to encourage each other because there's a lot of evil out there. And as the, the, day, the days approach, the return of Christ, I think the evil just keeps ramping up. At least that's what, that's what I see um, going on around me. And, um, and so uh, in this time, that's why the theme of the conference is overcoming evil. We want to uh, be men. We want to... Uh, look at the, the threats that challenge us, challenge our moral integrity, our families, our homes, our churches, our communities, and we want to stand against those things. We want to stand in the gap. We want to do what men traditionally have done. That, that's our goal. That's, that's our job. That's why God um, put us here, at least in part. And so I want to talk a little bit about that, and, and some of this might be familiar to you, maybe getting back to basics. Um, I ran a little bit of this past my wife last night. I sometimes do that. I got to be brave sometimes to do that. To, you know, what do you think about this? She said, well, that's just what you talk about all the time. I'm like, well, to you, but uh, <laughs> they haven't heard it. So, <laughs> so, so maybe self-conscious. And I thought, do I talk about this? On the podcast, maybe I do. So some of you who listen to my podcast, uh, maybe some of this you've heard. But, um, but I think it bears repeating. I think it's a good uh, reminder. So as many of you know, I'm interested in history, and um, if you read old books, if you read, or even if you watch, you know, television or something, if you if you see like, you know, not not that any of us are watching Jane Austen flicks. I mean, oh, someone, someone, I saw some looks. Some of you guys are you don't want to admit it, but uh, or Downton Abbey, right? Or so, you know, some of these old like British shows that show uh, a world that is foreign to us. Um, we th- there is this sort of maybe nostalgia we have or this. Uh, we, we look back and we think, wow, you know, that was such a different time. Men, men and women knew how to interact with each other, right? There were all these kind of rules. So you didn't have to, like, figure out, you know, how to date or things like that. You, you knew what to do. Um, it was a world of, I think we see it now in the archaic phrase, ladies and gentlemen. We still have that with us. But it really was a world of ladies and gentlemen. And, and this was a product of previous Christian civilizations. It wasn't a perfect world, but it was a world that existed not that long ago. There, there was a moral code. Men were supposed to abide by it. And someone um, traditionally could be born a gentleman through noble lineage, or they could earn the title gentleman through acts of valor. So you could go to war, let's say, save your buddies, and now you're a gentleman. You did something noble and proved yourself to your people, and so there's a status that comes with that. Uh, there were special rules and privileges that applied to gentlemen. For example, they were publicly respected. Their reputation allowed their testimony to hold greater weight in court. And they had more of a say in community affairs. An English dictionary from 1708 defines gentlemen as a person of honorable extraction. Now, to our ears today, 
maybe not as much in this room, but I think the general population, this sounds unusual. Um, people in the 18th century would have little concept of our world where academics and celebrities hold socially respected positions. Uh, they, they lived in a world where it was, it was families. It was, you know, generations of, of time produced someone of, of, of high character. Um, it was things like, uh, you know, like I said, acts of valor. And in, it was an internal virtue that was recognized as worthy of holding a uh, privileged place in society, right? That word privilege you can't even use anymore. But, but that, that's the world that, um, that used to exist, that uh, no longer exists. In, in at least vestiges of it maybe still do, but mostly it's, it's gone. Um, and it was imperfect, a, a place where... Um, a, a place where, of course, there are opportunities, as there always are, for the strong to dominate the weak and those kinds of things. But it was a place where society's leadership was unashamed of possessing power. They accepted the responsibility of their office, and they tried to maintain internal virtue. There was at least a standard that had to be upkept. Now, this world extended to the United States, and it lasted longest, uh, I think, in the American South, and, um, and this is, uh, I, I had you in mind, Pastor Rush, when, you know, with your Georgia accent here, but uh, I'm sure you've seen the movie Gone with the Wind. Many of you probably have, the old 1939 movie. And there's a poem at the beginning of that film. And the poem says this, there was a land of cavaliers and cotton fields called the Old South here in this pretty world of gallantry, uh, gallantry took its last bow. Here was the last ever to be seen of knights and their ladies fair, of master and of slave. Look for it only in books, for it is no more than a dream remembered, a civilization gone with the wind. Now, it is a safe assumption that merely reading these lines that presented a nostalgic picture for all Americans of every region in 1939 are likely to make people in 2023 very uncomfortable. Most modern media is filled with fantasies of females dominating males in physical combat. I don't really watch Marvel stuff anymore. I, 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 I can't take it seriously. Um, but it's not just Marvel. It, it's uh, you know, movies that are trying to, to portray something supposedly realistic. Well, this is not, that's not true to reality. Uh, even, uh, you know, even conservative organizations, like the, the Daily Wire even got in on this, and they, they were going to produce all these conservative films. And like, I think it was the first one they did was a film that had this very theme. It was, uh, you know, a lady that was basically, you know, beating up all these men. That's, that's what we, we continually have before us now. Um, the mainstream has also given up the idea that men should be civil and polite. In our cynicism, we do not believe these traits are actually achievable if they if they seem to be, so if you, if you notice someone who might have good character, it is only because they are covering up some nefarious intention, right? So, so the good men, the men who appear to be squeaky clean, they got to have a skeleton in the closet. That's how our society thinks about it. They, they must be worse than the rest of us. The best one can hope for is a man who is either disrespectful and brash or childish, and he needs the government to monitor and perhaps even care for him. He relies on maternal figures to quell his aggression because he lacks the self-control to do so on his own. Now, of course, any hierarchical labor relationship is also evil, which is why now we have unions, uh, HR departments, and OSHA regulations to ensure employers don't get any ideas. Now, we never thought the government might get ideas, but the employers, at least, they can't get any ideas. Modern people regularly conclude 
that the America of 1939 must have been a horrible place, dominated by powerful men bent on subjugating the weak and are grateful that we've allegedly advanced to a greater state of freedom and equality. I think that's the general view, at least among media elites and I would say uh, you know, young people in academic settings, that's certainly the, uh, the, the view that's accepted. Now the sad reality is perhaps today we do need protection from unjust bosses. That's, that's true actually. Perhaps there are times women must take initiative because men won't do it. Uh, perhaps we should limit the ability of powerful men from infringing on our rights. But can any of us honestly say that overall we have a higher functioning society than we did a century ago? We treat people like commodities today. It is common for people to engage in sex without commitment, destroy their offspring in the, room, in the womb, and expect the government to take care of them despite their poor decisions. There is little esteem for once respected authority figures like pastors and policemen and husbands and parents. Uh, our borders are overrun, our cities are shambles, and we are incapable of doing much about it because we are divided politically to the point that 40% of the people in the United States think that we're on the, the verge of a civil war. Thanks for the encouragement, John. I would like to suggest that there is a root symptom, though, for all this social upheaval. And this is the beginning, I think, of the hope. And this is where we're going to eventually, in a moment, we're going to turn our Bibles to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Um, in the quest to emancipate ourselves from previous social arrangements, we have lost something true, valuable, and crucial to our own continued existence. We have stopped producing Christian gentlemen in our homes and in their absence, and their absence is felt by all of us. However, this is my prediction. They will return because they must. There is going to be a return to some kind of a social hierarchy in which local people, men in particular, are going to be looked to for leadership once again. And men of high virtue and high trust are going to be the ones that we look to. And I think this is, is playing out before our eyes, or at least it's starting to play out before our eyes right now. Uh, 2020, I think you could say, was maybe the beginning of this, where many people lost hope. They, they lost the trust that had been uh, that they had granted to the media, to the medical establishment, in many cases to the uh, evangelical in industry, to, to just about every um, institution. There was now skepticism, and who did you trust at that point? Well, the people you knew, the people that you had seen with your own eyes, the people that demonstrated godly character. Uh, before you, the people in your local community, your local church. So I think this is already happening, and there's a strong demand. At least I can sense that. There's a very strong demand. As things decay and society breaks down, people will look again for leaders in their communities and churches. Um, I, I, I noticed this when I was traveling a bit. Uh, a lot of the stories that I'd hear of churches who wanted, if they wanted me to come, they probably, and speak about social justice, they were conservative, right? They, they had taken a stand against the COVID tyranny. They'd taken a stand against the BLM stuff. Otherwise, I wouldn't be there. But the stories I kept hearing were that, hey, we've, we've had a lot of growth here. We've had a lot of people showing up. We've had um, uh, just people from like cross-denominational, like, you know, we're Baptists. We've got a bunch of Presbyterians and Pentecostals showing up because we're open and because, you know, we, we, we know that it's not, the BLM isn't the gospel. CRT isn't the gospel. You know, it's, it's just some really basic things, but a lot of these pastors in local communities took a lot of heat for that. They, they had broken relationships. They were ostracized from their pastor groups, you know, but, uh, but the people of the community were, many of them at least, were looking for that leadership. 
So I think this is our this shuffle, this this uh, sort is already happening. So one of the reasons I chose the men I did uh, to speak at this conference, and I'm just the opening uh, session, but tomorrow um, you're going to have a number of godly men speaking here that I'll introduce, uh, is because I think they are the kind of men. They are Christian gentlemen. They are the kind of the template that we need going forward to confront the situations that, uh, the evil situations that we're going to be in. Now, I've said on my podcast before, for those who've listened to that, uh, I cannot think of a social problem that would not be solved if men took their obligations before God seriously. I can't think of one. Now, my goal for each of us in the short time we have uh, to open the conference is for us to think about ourselves and to ask where we fit into this. Are you a man of power, order, and virtue? like our Lord Jesus Christ was. Are you a Christian gentleman? Using that archaic word on purpose. That was one of the things my wife said. She said, you know, a gentleman's kind of an old word. I said, well, what do you, you know, have a substitute? You know, what, what, do, we, what do we say then? Do you, do you want me to say based Christians? You know, or something? she said, no, don't say that. I said, okay. Uh, <laughs> so based Christian men, no. Um, I, I think Christian gentleman is a fine word. I think it was, it was used for centuries, and I think we can bring it back. But if we use a different, different word, that's fine. We're talking about the same thing, a man of character. If you're not a man of character, do you want to be a man of character? Right? Do you have that desire? There are a few passages I would like to consider as we uh, go through this evening. Uh, you can turn to Genesis 1 first if you'd like. Um, what we repeatedly find in the pages of Scripture is God uses flawed men to do great things. So even when the situation looks bleaker in some ways than it does today, he raises up men like Moses, Gideon, David, to make peace, restore order, and promote true virtue. So these are flawed men, just like us, and yet God uses them, they, they, not in their strength, in God's strength, to do great things. That should encourage us. Um, another important thing to remember is that God equips the people he calls, which means we all need his strength to be Christian gentlemen in the present day. None of us have what it takes in and of ourselves. We have all made mistakes, we have sinned, and we will sin, and we will make mistakes. But Christ forgave us and is now changing us to be more like himself, if you are in Christ. We have every reason to be excited about the times we live in, because these are the times in which heroes are revealed, and great things are accomplished. Let us start with Genesis chapter 1. And let's look at God's plan for men from the beginning. And then we're going to highlight some virtues that men should cultivate. Genesis 1, chap, uh, verses 26 through 30. Genesis 1, 26 through 30 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every uh, tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you, and to every animal of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. So, this is a proof text for why we don't need to eat cauliflower because it is not a green plant. No, um, I wish I could have used that. 
This this is the the template though. This is this is this is very important. This is what God told man, mankind in general, man and woman, their job was. And, and that's why it's okay to do like what A.D. Robles was doing. He was fishing this afternoon. He caught a, a nice three three pound, three pound smallmouth bass, right? You have dominion, you took dominion over creation, a certain aspect of creation. We <laughs> <clears throat> we should have a tournament tomorrow and see who gets the bigger fish. Anyways, uh, there are many important things to note, though, about the passage we just read uh, that we need to, I think, think about. The one thing, though, I want to focus on in particular is that mankind is tasked with the unique role of ruling creation. We see in uh, both verse 26 and 28, the term for rule there, uh, radah, means to exercise authority or have dominion over something else. We find through the Old Testament that this term is applied to relationships between masters and slaves, rulers and subjects, and God and man. In this case, there is a special power that God endows mankind that, uh, with that enables them to rule the earth. So he's uniquely equipped you, is what I'm trying to say. And the passage uh, really gets, it tells us that, that, that that's what we are here for, so that's what we can do, that's what we're supposed to do. And we find later in Genesis chapter 2, if you want to turn there, chapter 2, verses 20 through 25, God's intention was for Adam to take the initiative in successfully accomplishing this rule with Eve. And this is what it says in, in verse 20, Eve is a helper suitable for him, a helper suitable for him, right by his side throughout scripture. This pattern of male headship permeates the pages of scripture. Kings, apostles, and pastors, all masculine offices. Now, one of the most important marks of manhood involves a willingness to wield God-given power in a righteous manner. And we cannot be afraid of this. This is, I think, one of the, this is one of the main things. I mean, there's three things that I'm really going you know, to draw out, and we're, we're starting at the first one. But um, the first is, is God's given us power. He's given us ability, right? He's given us the tools that we need. Uh, the, the second thing that we're going to talk about in, in a moment is that um, we have a specific task. God, God gives us a specific context and a very tangible mission. And then, uh, of course, the third thing is we need to have internal virtue to be able to do these things. But, but the first thing is where I think so many men stumble, right? Um, we're afraid of having power, many of us. Responsibility is a scary thing. That means I'm, I'm to blame. Like if something goes bad, who, who are they going to call? Uh, it's going to be me. Who, who's going to, you know, have the, the consequences and the fingers pointing at them. And, and this is a world where fingers are pointing at men an awful lot anyway. So, man, taking that, that responsibility, I'd rather let someone else do it. That sounds better. Uh, or, you know, maybe let's make it a joint decision so we can all kind of share the blame. It was the corporate board who made the decision or something like that. Um, and, then, and this is a big problem, actually. This is, this is a, I think, a, a big character defect. We need to be able to wield power as men. We, need to, we can't be afraid of it. Um, whether that's political power or power in the home or power in the church, power is not a bad thing. It's not a dirty word. Uh, when it's used rightly for righteous causes, it can be very good. Um, and it is better to have the righteous rule than the wicked. That's for sure. Someone's going to rule. So this is why it's important to know exactly, I think, what God expects of us and how he intends us to carry out our duties. Um, Genesis chapter 2 you can just flip back uh, to verses 7 through 8, gives us more details on what man's specific job is. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. 
and the man became a living person. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Now we see in this passage something extremely important for us to understand. Uh, the modern world would have us believe there are two primary reasons for our existence. Can you guess what they are? First is that we're just the result of what? Biological processes, right? Without any higher moral purpose, it's just happened. And in that sense, we are no different than animals. And maybe we can act like animals because it's morally permissible. The second reason we are told that we exist is to fulfill some kind of socially constructed purpose, whether that is the more classical liberal conception of personal autonomy, where we live to fulfill our own desires, or the more social justice idea of contributing to some egalitarian cause. What we see in Genesis 2, though, is something that is much deeper. God made man to live in a garden. In a, in a garden, specifically. In other words, our ultimate reason for existence comes from beyond our physical world, and yet at the same time, we are to carry out our purpose within a specific physical context. So gardens need cultivation, and that is, is exactly what Adam was tasked with. Look at verse uh, 15. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to tend it. Now, I was taught in seminary, some modern, uh, modern I guess, preachers and, and theologians spiritualize this. They'll say that this really means to worship and obey, that he, he put man in the Garden of Eden to worship and obey him. Uh, the, the words abad and shamar, Hebrew words. And, and, and I, I had to think about this. I, I don't think I agree with that, but um, if you do, that's fine. We are to worship and obey God. But um, that's kind of general, isn't it? There's something more tangible about this passage. Um, some translations say, work it and keep it. Others say, work it and watch over it. But the point is that man is given the responsibility of stewarding his particular portion of God's creation. So Adam's first task in this regard was to name all the animals. The uh, theologian Francis Turretin wrote that Adam's dominion over animals was confirmed when all animals were brought to Adam, that he might give them their particular names and receive that dominion as it were, a solemn investiture. So that was, that was symbolic, when Adam's first task in naming the animals. That, that already signified the relationship of man to creation. God gave man the responsibility to rule over the animals, and part of that rule in identifying and organizing them. Now, men have been doing that ever since. Identifying, organizing, building, sculpting, creating, um, this is, what it, this is what being a man is. This is part of what our job is. We find that um, this has a wide application, though, right? It's not just limited to gardeners and farmers. We find God gave Moses the faith to lead Israel in Exodus, Exodus 33. He gave skill and understanding to craftsmen building the sanctuary in Exodus 36. He gave wisdom to Solomon to rule Israel in 1 Kings chapter 3. He gave the apostles the power to do signs and wonders and miracles, it says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. So whether it's working with hands, conducting business, leading in the church, or a thousand other things, God ordained each man to manage his world, God's world, in different ways. Now, all these specific skill sets and general responsibilities require men willing to put in effort. Right? So don't be afraid of power, really, is the first, I guess, application. Don't be afraid of that. Um, yeah, we're going to make mistakes, but God also wants to, these are, these are times sometimes to test you, but he also 
wants you to wield power in ways that glorify him. Um, don't be afraid of that. But also don't be afraid of hard work, right? That's, that may be the second thing, you know, fear of responsibility and power, fear of working hard. It takes a lot of effort. It takes away from other things that I like to do. It is a man's job to invest his skills the best way he knows how to for God's kingdom and to work hard in achieving a return on that investment. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10 says, Whatever you find to do, do it with all your might. Now, that doesn't mean you can't relax. It doesn't mean you can't come on a retreat in the Adirondacks and enjoy you know, a nice sunset and take a nap and, and all of those things. I think leisure is actually very important. But that's actually part of our work, too in a way. Uh, it's, it's not uh, a leisure where we just live to gratify the lusts of our flesh. Um, there's always a higher purpose in everything that we do. And I, I find that I don't work well. I can't accomplish the tasks I have unless I'm rested and ready for them, right? You, we could try to work all night and live on minimum sleep, but that's not going to actually make us effective, uh, especially with battling all the evil that we have in front of us today. Now, we could call this fulfilling one's duty or meeting one's obligations, um, yet our lives are not meant to be drudgery in which we regrettably go to work all week so we can live for the pleasure of the weekend. You know, a lot of people live like that, right? That's, that's so common. Uh, accomplishing our work, fulfilling our duty, and stewarding God's creation is meaningful in and of itself. Consider this. God even told slaves, this is uh, Roman slaves, in, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 through 24, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. How many else, uh, how many, many other people in this room, is that their you know, life first? Does that come across their minds when your boss tells you to do something? Okay, whatever I do, do all the glory of God. That, that is something that God told slaves. When you think about it, the position that they're in that they're part of this too. They're doing their work heartily for the Lord. Now, sometimes perhaps it does not feel that way. It doesn't feel too glamorous. It doesn't feel like it's that important. But the fact is God put each of you on this planet to work towards something greater than yourselves. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And while all people are given the ability to accomplish earthly good in the temporal world, only those redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ are able to accomplish heavenly good. And interestingly, we see in, in Titus uh, chapter 1, verse 5, before Paul highlights all the uh, requirements, all the attributes of an elder, he says this to Titus. He says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So even in the church, a spiritual community, we find that God gives men the task of organizing his people. That's, that's work. That's taking cre creation, things God has made, and then fashioning them. In the rest of the passage, Paul highlights exactly how elders in the church are to order their own lives and the lives of their families. And the reason, of course, is because if they cannot manage those things, they cannot manage something as vital as the church. Jesus put it this way. This is from Luke uh, chapter 16, verse 10. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Now, Christian societies used to apply this metric to civil leaders too. 
John Jay, uh, the founding father, John Jay, said in a Federalist uh, paper, number 64, as the select assemblies for choosing the president, as well as the state legislatures who appoint the senators, will in general be composed of the most enlightened and respectable citizens, there is reason to presume that their attention and their votes will be directed to those men only who have become the most distinguished by their abilities and virtue, in whom the people perceive just grounds for confidence. Now, there's more than one thing that we could talk about in this. I mean, the fact that state legislatures were actually the ones who appointed senators, it wasn't a direct vote. This is a little bit of a different time. But he's saying that in those state legislatures, the people that were elected, they would then elect um, senators who had virtue. That was important. That was the assumption. That's the whole system. System doesn't work without it. It was all set up so that we would select good men to be in these positions, right? How's that working now? It's not. It's not, it's not working out too good. But that, that was the intention from the beginning. Uh, we still have actually, our, uh, you know, I guess, aspects of this. You, you see, like, swearing in ceremonies, and typically... What does the candidate do who wins? He puts the hand on the Bible. Yeah, that's, that's exactly uh, what that's symbolizing, that this person is, is a virtuous person, that they're before God saying that they're going to carry out the duties of their office. And if they don't, guess who's going to hold them accountable? God. God will. Sadly, maintaining personal virtue is no longer seen as a qualification for wielding power. And the negative impact of this is noticeable. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, we find that God instructed Adam to maintain his virtue in order to keep his position as the head gardener in Eden. It says in verse 16, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Now the next chapter shows us what happened when Adam disobeyed. Not only was mankind cursed with sin and the spiritual death that accompanies it, but we were effectively kicked out of the garden and made to work for a living to the point of exhaustion by the sweat of our brow, it says in Scripture. Getting back to this lost virtue has been the pursuit of man since that time. How many men, maybe they don't even express it in these terms, but they are trying to get back to Eden? I mean, isn't that kind of the, the utopian schemes that we live in today? Isn't that what the social justice movement in part was about? Even in spiritual ignorance, people know something is wrong with the world. Pagan religions have always invented false systems that make them seem virtuous to others while justifying certain sins. Maybe we can create a system where we'll get virtue again. For example, today... We are made to think that in order to be good, someone must uphold the freedom to commit sexual immorality instead of actually remaining sexually moral themselves. That's a flip. But we view that that's a virtue now. It's, it's a virtuous to want people to be able to exercise their freedom in that way. Virtue signaling has made it easy for people to seem virtuous because they harbor a nice-sounding belief in their mind regardless of their actions. I remember, just a quick aside, I, I was at a, a graduation ceremony, uh, I think it was maybe the end of last year, and uh, at this particular uh, college, every single speaker that got up said how much they loved diversity and were committed to diversity. It was like, it, was, it got weird to me after a while. It was almost like they were giving a, their, their confession or something, reciting some kind of you know, faith 
uh, commitment. And the, the thing that struck me, though, was how none of the people, these are you know, professors at this school, when they got up, actually said anything about tangible people they knew who were diverse. They didn't talk about you know, their friends who were different. They didn't talk about you know, experiences they had. It was all just this abstract, you know, I'm committed to diversity. Like, you could literally have no friends who are diverse, not you know, like even diverse cuisines and just live in your monolithic environment. But if you say in your mind, I like diversity, that makes you a good person, right? That, that's what I'm getting at here. And that's not what virtue is. Um, there are many virtue lists in the scripture. I'm going to pick one for you. This is Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. It's a short one. It says this, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? So a virtuous man fulfills the obligations he has to others. He treats them with respect, and he submits to God in all things. And notice something about this. These beliefs, they're not actually... Um, Beliefs he assents to. That's not strictly what they are. Like, for example, he does not love the idea of doing what is right. He's not in love with the idea of doing what is right. He actually loves doing what is right. See the difference? Um, today we believe about um, how, how external things ought to be arranged is confused with virtue. We, today what we do is we, we look at a belief about social arrangements or some, something else, you know, that in beauty contests, not that I watch those, but I'm told that, uh, you know, my wife tells me, uh, you know, they always say that uh, if they're going to solve any problem, it's curing world hunger, right? That's the, uh, the typical answer. They're just, you know, if they, if they could do anything, they're going to cure world hunger. I mean, that's a nice sounding thing. Not very practical, but it's, it's very nice sounding to want to do those kinds of things. But that's an external thing. That's not internal virtue. That doesn't show anything internal about them and who they are. It hasn't been tested. Statues to people who had internal virtues, like George Washington, are erased because they had the wrong ideas about social arrangements and labor relationships, according to modern liberals. Yet statues of people like MLK Jr., who demonstrated a very poor moral character, are erected because he harbored views consistent with liberal thinking on those subjects. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That's the revolution that we've gone through. It's an attack on virtue. It's an attack on men. It's an attack on eternal, internal virtue. Virtue is not simply wishful thinking, though. Virtue is real, internal. It's in condition of the human soul. And I think perhaps one of the best examples of someone with virtue, since I've already made my enemies saying what I did about MLK, I'll just double down and say, I think Robert E. Lee. He's, I think he's one of the most virtuous people. And I've read more biographies of Robert E. Lee than I probably have other people. And so there's a lot of stories that I could share with you, but um, just, just a few things, and then I want, I want to share a quick story about him. Um, he was praised by everyone from Winston Churchill to R.C. Sproul. President Eisenhower said of him, through all his many trials, Lee remained selfless almost to a fault and unfailing in his faith in God. Taken altogether, he was noble as a leader and as a man and unsullied as I read the pages of our history. From deep convictions, I simply say this. Listen to this. A nation of men of Lee's caliber would be unconquerable in spirit and soul. A nation of men of Lee's caliber would be unconquerable in spirit and soul. Now, there are many stories that could, could demonstrate this, um, but, I, but one stands out to me. After the end of the Civil War, Robert E. Lee was destitute. He, he had been, I mean, his, his army was defeated. <laughs> He's in a war-torn area in poverty. And he, 
unlike many of his men, whom he shared a similar fate with, he had a growing popularity. People respected him immensely. People on, in the North respected him immensely. People in Great Britain respected him. He had a lot of admirers. And he was offered an estate in England to live in for the rest of his life in peace and comfort. They would, in, in really lavish comfort. He would be well taken care of. He could leave the war-torn area that he had been in, and he could find peace and rest. Um, it was also suggested that he should run for governor. You know, he probably would have won. One of Lee's biographers wrote that on one occasion, he was approached with a tender of the presidency of an insurance company at the salary of $50,000 a year, which back then, multimillionaire, okay? He declined it on the ground that it was work with which he was not familiar. But general, said the gentleman who represented the insurance company, you will not be expected to do any work. What we wish is to use your name. So if we could just slap your name on our insurance, and we can sell more. Do you not think, said General Lee, that if my name is worth $50,000 a year, I ought to be very careful about taking care of it? He knew what Proverbs 22.1 says. A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. Instead, Lee took a position earning only $1,500 a year. It's a little different than $50,000 as the president of Washington College. And the reason he refused all of those other offers and took this position is fascinating to me. Lee said this, the thought of abandoning the country and all that must be left in it is abhorrent to my feelings. And I prefer to struggle for its restoration and share its fate rather than to give up all as lost. And Virginia has need of all her sons. Lee dedicated himself to training Christian gentlemen, those are his words, at Washington College, now Washington and Lee College, because he knew his abilities, he knew his duty, and he had virtue to accomplish his mission. Many biographers have talked about Lee in glowing terms as the last vestige of chivalry and knighthood. But above all, he was a Christian, a Christian gentleman. Yet Lee said about himself that he was, quote, Nothing but a poor sinner trusting in Christ alone for salvation and in need of all the prayers that can be offered for me. That was his estimation of himself. Everyone else respected him, and yet that's what he believed about himself. He knew compared to Christ, he fell short. I want to bring this to a conclusion. There is only one perfect Christian gentleman because there is only one perfect man. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says about Christ that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Only Jesus is able to perfectly wield power. Only Jesus is able to possess power, accept the responsibility, and maintain internal virtue perfectly. None of you are good enough to do what God requires of you in your own strength. But there is something you can do. Hebrews chapter 11 continually points this out. And we can start, uh, if you want to turn there, Hebrews chapter 11 Verse 32, I'm going to read through verse 38 to close this. Verse 32, For time will fail me if I tell you, says the author of Hebrews, of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. 
Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yet also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. These are the kind of men that fill the pages of the Hall of Faith, it's called, in Hebrews chapter 11. And they're men just like you and I, men of flesh and blood, men of weaknesses, men with sins, men with challenges, men with men, much evil around them. And some of the situations they faced actually Ours pale in comparison. And yet the thing that they had that got them through it, that helped them fulfill their duties, was they had faith in God. Faith that they, uh, not in their own strength, but in the strength of their Lord, would see, that, that he would see this, whatever challenge they were going through, through. That they would come out the other side and that everything would be well. And, and that's the kind of faith that we need today. We must trust in the finished work of Christ on our behalf for salvation, and we must then rely on him through prayer and scripture to follow after Christ's example. This is how we can all be Christian gentlemen, with the power to steward God's creation externally and remain virtuous internally. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of a, a background of what a gentleman was historically and how we can return to that. And I don't know what it looks like for each of you because we're all different and we're in different situations. Um, some of us are still growing up. Sometimes I feel like I'm still growing up. And, and we're all going to be growing the rest of our life. But we have specific responsibilities God has put in front of us right now. And I think most of us know what those are. Many of them apply to all of us, right? Loving your family applies to everyone. But some of them are specific to us. We know the, the thing we ought to do. We know that, you know what? Maybe I should put my name in for that promotion. Maybe, maybe that I shouldn't be afraid. Um, I know that's a common thing I hear today about people, you know, you're in the workforce and it's hostile and I'm a Christian. What do you do? Do you just keep your head down? What do you do? Right? Um, only you and God know the situations that, that confront you on a daily basis. But there is power. There is power in the Holy Spirit. He will, um, he will provide for you. He will take care of you. Uh, we've seen that, that example over and over, even in our modern day of people who take the right stand and God rewards it. And they're spiritual rewards that outweigh the rewards uh, of this physical world. So I just want to encourage you with that. I know, th you know times are, are bleak in, in some ways. I think we all feel that to some extent, uh, maybe, whether that's politically, socially, in the church, in our own lives. But there is a God who still cares about us, who still has equipped us, who still has a job for us to do as men. And we also have each other, and that's why we're here this weekend. So uh, with that, I'd like to close in prayer.